And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I will give you the particulars about this program, where you can find it, and all the other great information that we usually give at the front of the program. But I want to start our program right off by talking with our very special guest, Mark Dowd, who has written... Quite honestly, a very fascinating and insightful uh, book uh, and story of his life and the experience he's had. My Tsunami Journey is the title of the book, The Quest for God in a Broken World. And Mark, thank you for joining us and for sharing your story with us here today. It's a real pleasure. Now, you're coming to us all the way from the U.K., Indeed, uh, about uh, five, six thousand miles away, I think. Yeah, uh, and I would gladly make the fifteen-hour plane ride. Uh, I love that part of the world. I haven't spent a lot of time there. I've I've only been to England twice, and that was through Heathrow on my way to Ireland. And uh, I wouldn't mind settling in either of those islands, uh, the British Isles or uh, the Republic of Ireland. Uh, just beautiful country. But we're talking about uh, something, if I am not mistaken, something that happened, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's like 17 years ago. Am I correct? 17 years That's ago. Right. It was yeah. Yeah. Around December, uh, December the 26th, 2004. Day so, after yeah. Christmas. Yeah. That's right. And there have been some movies made. We've actually seen a couple of them of people who survived. Uh, in particular, I wish I could remember the name of the movie, but this particular movie was about a, a family of four, uh, two boys and mother and father, and they got swept up and separated, and eventually they were reunited, which was a beautiful thing. But that didn't happen to a lot of people. A lot of folks were actually swept out to sea, and so on and so forth. You were not living there at that time, am I correct? No, I, I was in a picturesque uh, village in the north of England sharing an idyllic Christmas with my, my parents. And we'd have one of those lovely um, Christmases with lots of food and wine and uh, it was snowing and I was out on the hilltops doing a lot of hiking and walking. And on uh, the 26th of December, we came back in. We had a really good family uh, dinner. And then my dad said, oh, let's switch on the news. And I used to hate people switching on the TV at Christmas because mm. it's like, oh, you know, don't let the outside world in. It's going to spoil everything. Yeah. Oh, my God, was I right? <laughs> uh, my dad switched the TV on and we just saw corpses. We just mm. saw people being lined up in this Buddhist temple with all these bodies all piling up and the monks in their saffron robes. And my dad said, you know, what, what, what's happened? And we switched the volume up, and these were the first images coming from Thailand. Uh, if you remember in 2004, a lot of the Western preoccupation with this story was holidaymakers. It was tourists. It's yeah. people we knew, yeah. our friends all out there. Are they going to get back? Are they okay? Uh, and as the images um, grew on the news, minutes and minutes of this passed by. My dad switched the TV off, and he turned to me. And he uttered a few words that changed my life forever. He said, God could have stopped that. Mm. Why didn't Why didn't God stop that? What have those people done to deserve that? And my dad was a church-going Catholic. He never missed church on a Sunday. He was absolutely devout. Someone who'd never, ever even raised with me the question of whether God is a creation of the human imagination or is really there. 
oh no, my dad was absolutely a paid up believer. And for, to see him so riddled with doubt really, really disturbed me, you know? Yeah. I'm curious, um, how was he, and in turn, how did he raise you on that religious slash spiritual level uh, in terms a, of a particular philosophy, and again, prior to December 26, 2005? Oh, I was a complete cradle Catholic, you know. I mean, uh, my name Dowd is an Irish name, exactly. <laughs> uh, Catholic, Catholic school, Catholic secondary school, brought up with priests and nuns and Christian brothers and so on. And I, you know, when I went to university at the age of 18, this was the first big shock for my life. I was surrounded by all these agnostics and atheists. I mean, who were these people? I, I just thought everyone in the world believed. I was very naive. I was very protected. And suddenly at the age of 19, you find yourself drinking a bit too much wine at a student party. And somebody says, if you believe in a loving God, why do babies die of leukemia? Mm. And you go, uh, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Can I get back to you on that one? That's you right. know, next? Let, me, let, me, let me check in with Socrates and, uh, and the other philosophers. They'll, let, me just, let me read the great writings of the founding fathers of our faith, and I'll get back to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So... You, uh, as was I, I was born and raised uh, in Western Rite, and I make that definite that uh, uh, separation because when I turned 23, when I became, when I was uh, 23 years of age, and actually 22, I met a woman. I met a girl actually, who I married. Uh, she turned 18, and we got married in, uh, in July of um, uh, 1983. And she was of the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church, the Byzantine Rite. Now, a lot of people say, oh, that's Orthodox. No, 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 it's still under the Pope. Still under the Pope. Constantinople uh, is, is where it uh, actually was started. And um, I learned an awful lot from that perspective. I still have a great reverence, a great, uh, um, I want to say, appreciation for the ritual, the ceremony, traditions of the church. I actually have a hardbound copy of the Slavonic liturgy from the Byzantine Rite that I happened to um, carry out of the church one day by mistake. I still have it. You could go to a mass today, and if they had videoed the 1983 masses, the same, with the exception, of course, of the homily or the, or the sermon. Uh, and there's just something about that. And it's along the same lines. I used to produce a program called the Radio Family Rosary Program. The irony was it was only a half hour, but uh, I loved uh, uh, listening to it. I would even recite it, and I even got challenged because it was on a Christian, evangelical Christian station, the program. And they said, how can you do this? You're praying to Mary. Blah, blah, blah. I said, uh, have you actually, A, read the rosary, and B, did you know that every word is found in the Bible? Okay. And C, they're not praying to Mary per se, other than for her to intercede, just as you would ask your fellow parishioners or uh, laity to pray for you or pray for some other intention. That's all they're doing, unless you believe that Mary is dead and it's lights out after death. But obviously you don't believe that because you believe in heaven and hell and et cetera, et cetera. So anyway. You know, I, I always say about Mary, the one's big calling card, look, the men all abandoned Jesus and ran away. The woman his mother was there at the foot of the cross and she stayed with him to the end as yeah. any mother would. And that's why she's the perfect disciple. And then you have another Mary who was not just the first woman. She was the first person 
to see him following his resurrection. And I kind of jokingly say that uh, she wanted to touch the hem of his garment. But he said, no, 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 no. Uh, the process isn't finished yet. And I, I jokingly say, well, look, the paint wasn't dry. Okay, so don't touch. The paint's not quite dry yet. And yet the guys come along a little later because she recognized who he was. The guys come along a little later and say, oh, man, I tell you, our best friend died. Do you know the nearest pub we can go to to knock back a, a few uh, in memory of him? They didn't recognize him. And uh, that's why I, 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 I'm, I'm befuddled as well as saddened by the fact that, uh, that uh, the women have not received the credit that they absolutely richly deserve throughout the centuries, not just of Christianity, but of, of any other philosophy or faith. It's really kind of sad. And I'm curious, as we continue talking here with uh, our guest, who is the author of My Tsunami Journey, Mark Dowd, on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're talking about his adventures into, uh, I guess you'd say Southeast Asia, Indonesia, I guess is the uh, general area, um, about this tsunami. I remember seeing the pictures on the 26th of, uh, Jan of December of 2005. Uh, it was the year before, uh, actually less than six months before I moved to Santa Barbara. And I just, I'm going, wow, Unbelievable. It's serious. This really. And then, of course, uh, years later, we've had several movies that have come out about it, both a documentary type as well as a, a story of a family. Your father made uh, an interesting comment. I think that you've already alluded to if there is a God, so to speak, I paraphrase. How could he let this happen? And um, first of all, I'm curious as to. If you even responded to that query, and if so, how did you respond to it, if not directly to him verbally, but in your own mind and your own heart? I remember blurting out to him that the laws of nature, the laws of science had to be predictable. And that for, for us to live in a world where maybe God intervened some of the times, but other times he didn't, it would be really, really tricky because... What happens if I pull the trigger and I expect God to stop the bullet from hitting your head? And then actually God decides he doesn't want to intervene on that day. Um, but the next day he does intervene. I mean, what happens to morality in a world where God in this capricious way is sort of intervening, but they're not intervening? There has to be a consistency. The framework has to be consistent. Mm -hmm. But also I remember bleating out this pathetic you know that thing in, that what I call internal dissonance, where you say one thing, <laughs> the, little man, the little man in your brain goes, uh-uh, you don't really believe this, do yeah. you? I remember saying, oh, well, it's all a big mystery. And in the book of Job, you know, Job doesn't get an explanation in chapter 41 or whatever it is. He goes through all these terrible things. And God just says, well, where were you when I set all this up, you know? Uh, so maybe we're not really meant to know. And I went to, I hardly slept that night when my dad uh, raised those points. Mm -hmm. And it was the next morning. I We had a really good contact with the head of religion in one of the big TV companies in the UK, uh, who was a Muslim. And I, I rang him up and I said, I've had this terrible conversation with my dad. He's really disturbed by it. And, and he said, okay, well, what's your answer to the question? I said, you know, Akil, I really don't know. He said, okay, give me half an hour. And then within half an hour, he came back and said, 
I've got you the money. You're going to go on this trip. You are going to explore Hinduism. You're going to explore Buddhism. You're going to explore Islam and also your own Christian faith. And you're going to answer this question, Tsunami, where was God? And that's what the next year was all about. And that's what this book is about. Wow. And I have to say that that uh, uh, brings up memories of and, and I'd like to think that the story that was told of Gandhi in the movie Gandhi was true, <clears throat> where he is on a on a, um, a fast, if you will. <clears throat> he refuses to eat until certain things happen between the Hindus and Muslims. <clears throat> and these two fathers come running up to him in the middle of the night and he's laying there and and. Um, they're both distraught because the Hindu father says that I just killed a Muslim. And the Muslim father says I just killed a Hindu. Uh, you know, and, and they killed my boy uh, or my children. Da, 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 da. What, what are we going to do? I, I, you know, how, how, would, how, do we, you know, how do we fix this, so to speak? And he basically responds to the Hindu father. He says, you find a Muslim child. And you raise it as a Muslim. To the Muslim, he says, you find a Hindu child and you raise him as a Hindu. And I think that's part of where we are really astray. And I'd love for your comments on this in our modern day. We are so vested in our own personal perspective, regardless of what the category, religious, political, economic, educational, etc., ethnic, that it's, it's uh, damn the torpedoes, it's my way, or you die. Yeah. It's kind of what we're seeing right now, in particular, in Ukraine. And, and, and quite honestly, all I can say is, it's got to stop. Doggone it, it's got to stop. But talk to us a little bit about uh, that in, in that regard. Because I think, now you said this was a, a, an imam. Yeah. I got to tell you, I would love to get a hold of that guy and and interview him about his perspective. I'm, he's a Muslim. He's an, uh, uh, an imam teaching of what Muhammad said out of the Quran. And yet he's telling you, you're going to go on this trip to learn yeah. about all of these other religions. Actually, he wasn't a teaching imam. He was just the head of, oh, okay. of, 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 of the religious um, okay. channel, if you like. But he was a very devout practicing Muslim. Yeah, himself. but um, that's still astounding. You know, Richard, on, on the journey, what was so interesting was that, you know, in, in Sumatra, in, in Indonesia, I didn't find one person in the two weeks we were there who had this questioning of God because Muslims are told not that God is love, as Christians basically conceive of God, they conceive of God as power, as unknowable, as mystery, and, and also that pain and suffering are a test that you have to somehow surmount in this world. And so mm-hmm. to shake your fist at God and say, why have you done this? Explain yourself to me is very, very bad manners, <laughs> to mm-hmm. say the least. Yeah. And, and when, when we told people out there about the program we were making, a lot of them screwed their face up and said, what do you mean, where was God? And I said, well, you know, innocent people have died here. Children have died, 130,000 people by the time uh, we got out there. And they said, well, you know, it's God's ways. Uh, by the way, there's one very important thing to, to, to add here. The mischief 
and the pernicious way that people skew and abuse the suffering of others to cement their own agendas. Mm. The Islamic Defense League, do you know what their explanation for the tsunami was? Mm. Because young people were being promiscuous and copulating on the beach. Well, we have our own here in the United States, uh, one Jerry Falwell, uh, who oh, blamed yeah. all of our uh, problems in the U.S. back in the 80s on the gays. That's, that's, uh, AIDS is God's uh, wrath, if you will, or punishment. Yeah. And of course, you have the uh, delightful Kansas-based Westboro Baptist Church, who featured in our film, uh, who basically said, 25,000 Swedes dead. Praise the Lord for the tsunami. And it was like, excuse me. Uh, and their logic was because Sweden had such liberal accepting laws on homosexuality, God had singled out Swedes and Sweden and had zapped them all uh, in Thailand, uh, just as, a, as a, a, you know, basically there are, there are things that we knock on the head in this book, Richard, which I hope will be music to the ears of your viewers and listeners. Uh, one, suffering and pain is not divine punishment for sin. Because when babies die of leukemia, that child has not sinned and doesn't deserve what happens to him or her. Secondly, God does not use suffering as an instrumental way of making us better, uh, like some sort of tyrant who puts us through a crash course to enhance our character. Because regrettably, many people take their own lives when the um, burden of life becomes too much. Some people cannot cope with suffering. They become mentally ill and beyond um, repair. And I can't conceive of a loving God who would do that. And thirdly, our old favorite, it's all Adam and Eve's fault. Yes, it was all marvelous in the garden and there was no death and pain and suffering. And suddenly our ancestral parents got it all wrong, rebelled, and from nowhere, thistles and horrible things appeared in the natural world, like cyclones and disease and mosquitoes that weren't there before. There's one big problem with that, death and disease and pain and suffering predate humanity. They're not caused by humanity. It's part of the natural world. So we have to throw all of that out and start again. And that's what I'm sort of offering, in a sense, in, in, in this book. Um, there's a lot about science. There's a lot about environment and a lot about physics in this book. For an intelligent layperson, you know, I'm not Einstein. Um, I, I studied French and history and English. I'm not the kind of person who's very good on quantum theory and chaos theory. <laughs> but, but, but the good thing about being an intelligent arts graduate is that you learn the basics and you be able to communicate that to people if you've understood it well. Yeah. And do you know what, what the conclusion I came to in this big quest, the broken world? That the positives and negatives of life are inseparable that a tectonic plate which causes havoc for the people who live near them regenerates the crust of the earth. It forces land above water. It makes the, the uh, agriculture possible because of, of ores and, and, and the enrichment of the earth's surface, making human life possible. Um, I mentioned mosquitoes. We just think they give you malaria and what possible purpose could God have for a mosquito in this world? The mosquito is the brilliant arch pollinator, which is an absolutely pivotal part of the food chain. And without it, the whole thing will collapse. The big question is, if you can't shine a lamp without having a shadow, which is what God is effectively doing in creating in the first place, why have you done it at all? <laughs> yeah. 
I, I often, uh, uh, when, when, for example, uh, the volcanoes were erupting and spewing out lava in, uh, on a, in Hawaii on one of the, one of the islands, <clears throat> nobody was being hurt. Uh, certainly there were threats, obviously, to uh, the civilized world. Uh, but for the most part, it was kind of going out into the ocean. And I thought, you know what? The real estate agents, they're going to love this because there's new areas for them to build. You know, it's going to be a few years, you know, until it cools down. But, hey, there's new real estate. You know, they should be happy. And again, I think it's all a matter of perspective. As we continue talking with Mark Dowd and his book, My Tsunami Journey, here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And... I, I have to say, uh, Mark, Mark Dowd, who is our guest, author of uh, My Tsunami Journey, your journey is fascinating in that it, it uh, says to each one of us, what can I do? What should I do? Now, granted... Um, I can't, I don't, ha even if I had the wherewithal, what good would it do me to go to Thailand, to Indonesia in 2005, late December, early January 2006? What the heck am I going to do? I just feel like I'm going to be in the way. There are already hundreds of people there, ships off the coast uh, providing uh, uh, sustenance and support and so forth. What can I do? Yet you chose to go. Did that question cross your mind as well? I mean, I understand the, the gentleman, the, the, the Muslim who gave you the money and said, you are going on a journey here to learn. Um, did you think you were going there also to be part of the humanitarian aid? Oh, you know, that's such an interesting question, because when you're a journalist or a writer in this field, of course, the natural goal for us was to make a documentary and find people to speak to. But you're faced with people with cripplingly moving human stories. And let me share one with you, uh, which as you know, as journalists, we don't like to get involved with the people we interview because we're frightened of becoming too emotional or too biased, or maybe we won't tell their story objectively if we get too emotionally involved. There was a young girl called Walapa in Thailand. She lost two daughters, aged 10 and 5. And at the end of the interview, I said to her, look, you're only 29 years old. You could still become a parent and a mother. The end of parenthood and family life is not here for you. It's possible. We'll bring your children back, but you and your husband could still um, have children. And then she leant forward and said, Mark, I can't. I've had these ectopic pregnancies. My fallopian tubes are damaged. The only way I can have children is through IVF. And I don't have a house. I don't have any money. How am I going to get $6,000 for three or four rounds of IVF? And I leant forward impulsively, put my hand in hers and said, we'll get the money for you. Mm. And her eyes welled up with tears. And she said, oh, you're just saying that. And I said, no. And now that I've said it, I promise you we will. And my producer lent in my ear and said, you can't say that. You can't go around saving all these people we're interviewing. I said, I'm, I'm not proposing we save everybody, but I have said what I have said. And I will honor that commitment. We found that money through churches, through an appeal. And guess what? 
she became pregnant and there's now a 14-year-old boy wandering around in Thailand and a Buddhist monk, hearing the story of how he came about, said to his mother, you must call this child Fluke. <laughs> because the, the, the chances of him appearing, given your husband's low sperm count, given the fact that you had no money, given the fact that you are being interviewed by this Western journalist, you could have spoken to anybody, but it happened to be you. The, the, the mathematical chances of this child emerging are so one in a zillion, we have to call him Fluke. Uh, I don't know what the Thai word for Fluke is, but whatever it is, that's his name. And I'm, I'm so proud we did that because, Richard, you know one thing? <laughs> people say, because I can't help everybody, I'm going to help nobody. <laughs> and that doesn't really get us very far, does it? We have to do what we can, you know? We do our bit. So that's that's what I did, you know. Well, I, I it reminds me of the uh, the the series Viking, and one of the characters in it, uh, Floki, <laughs> just came to my mind. I don't Luke know, if, Floki. I don't know yeah. if it's if it's Viking for or Norseman for Fluke, but uh, he was sort of the um, Merlin of of the of the tribe in in that respect, you know. As we continue talking with you, Mark, um, I, I get the sense that there was maybe at the outset there was some resistance to this journey. But once you embarked, it was like, OK, uh, universe, God, where am I going? What am I doing? Uh, you know, it, it, it was a bit like Bruce Almighty, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show me you're there, you know, OK. Um, I mean, let me tell you, when we landed in Indonesia, I mean, you know, you talk about the attitude and, and whether I was apprehensive or not. The only remaining hotel that was left standing were, had four floors to it. And there were only a few rooms left because most of the journalists and the relief people were trying to stay in this ropey hotel. And we went to the reception and they said, we have rooms on the top floor or the bottom floor. And everyone said, there are warnings about aftershocks after this terrible earthquake and tsunami. And it was, uh, is it better to be on the top floor if there's another earthquake? Because you've got a long way to fall. Mm -hmm. Or is it better to be on the ground floor, but all the rubble will fall on top of you, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a perilously difficult journey because roads weren't um, passable. You know, from get to, it's a bit like going from San Francisco to LA via yeah. Denver. <laughs> oh. <laughs> A matter of because fact, the, because the Pacific Highway is actually, you know, there's a great big chasm between yeah. two bits of it and you can't cross it. Yeah. And it, it, it made making this film really hazardous. It reminded it reminds me of uh, the the um, the trip that uh, I am, as of our conversation, about to embark on on the 22nd of April back to Phoenix, Arizona, where um, we're going to have uh, a uh, um, a memorial slash funeral for my late for my sister, my eldest sister. Uh, who passed on the 29th of March. And um, I'm looking at, and I'm wanting to fly out of Burbank because it's cheaper. Well, it is cheaper. However, for some reason, the flights are taking 10 to 12 hours. I was like, where is this plane going? Uh, is it is there one stop along the way and I'm I, I have a layover of eight to nine hours or something? I mean, this is crazy because it only takes an hour and a half to fly from Santa Barbara to Phoenix. So I was able to get a flight out of Santa Barbara rather than taking the train, although I have to um, I have to say that taking the train to Burbank and then a flight to Phoenix 
was sort of the uh, Steve Martin and John Candy planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, it was an interesting trip, which we won't go into right now. But I'm curious about about your travels. One of the reasons why I enjoyed it was because I love traveling and meeting new people along the way. Talk to me about, let's just start initially with your departure from England. And I'm assuming you probably flew out of Heathrow. Um, And when you started meeting people along the way, the people sitting next to you or what have you, and the conversation that came up, you might ask them, so so where are you headed and why are you going there? Holiday, what have you. And then they asking you that question and what would your response to them be? Yeah, I remember getting in a conversation uh, as we were flying, I think, out to Jakarta, having to change planes in I think Delhi on the way. But uh, one person said to me, you know, are you on international business travel? And I said, uh, no, not really. <laughs> and of course, when you say I, <laughs> I'm, I'm going out to answer the question where God was in the tsunami, it's a real conversation stopper. Uh, people's eyes glaze over and they go, oh, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, and, and people nervously change the subject on some occasions because it's just a bit too yeah. much. It's too much of a head-busting mm-hmm. thing for them. But, of course, one or two people had some very, very strong views of their own. And and uh, the next thing, you know, you're involved in a, in a two-hour conversation with somebody about karma. Uh, and Hinduism, because they're, uh, I mean, you know, one person said on the plane before we even got to India, they said, these people who died in the tsunami, they all did something bad in a previous life mm. because of because of reincarnation. So those children that died, they weren't really innocent. They were really bank robbers and murderers previously. And that's why they died. Mm. And uh, it's like, well, how do you answer that? You know? yeah. And it, it, it taught me one thing. Human beings are really bad at arbitrary explanations for things that go wrong, such as, I'm sorry, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. It's not because God zapped you down yeah. for a particular reason. Uh, you know, um, We want to, whether it's through karma or divine punishment, want to erect these systems so we can say, ah, there's a reason for this, there's a meaning for it. The only me- the meaning there is is that we live in a physical world in which positives and negatives are inseparable. Mm-hmm. And we have to hazardously, as creatures, find our way through that world. But it doesn't mean that God is malicious, and it doesn't mean that God isn't loving. And of course, you know, what it also means, as we are here in the middle of the uh, Passion and, and, and Easter season, that God takes on material flesh himself, and God subjects himself to suffering of the most excruciating nature and says after three days, by the way, this is not the end of the story. Mm. I was abandoned. I was left in darkness. My, my mission looked like a total failure. But I tell you, this is not the end of the story. There is a transcendent message. And um, it's a comfort to us as Christians, I think, the fact that God becomes human and the fact that the it's as though somehow God anticipates this question about suffering and enters right into the heart of it and says, this is where I am with you. I'm not remote from you. I'm absolutely alongside of you. And just hold my hand and go through it with me because it will not be the final part of this chapter. And no. you said a very key phrase, go through it. 
go mm. through it with me. Uh, yeah, not, not avoid it. No. Not run away from it. Mm. No, no. Yeah. And you can't you can't avoid it. If no. you're human, you 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 know, and in a sense, if we say if if a world without pain and suffering is inevitable as a price that we pay for having a material world, is not the situation that God I don't think it's to limit God's power to say that this material world has of its very essence, has to have these upsides and downsides. God can't make two and two equal five. God cannot perform the logically impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, if there was another planet, Richard, where there was no pain and suffering and all the Martians or all the other creatures had a really great time, we could point to that and say, it's not fair, like every child does of their sibling. Why have they got something that I haven't got? But this is the only world we know. Yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 and and um, it's there in the Gospels. Unless a grain of seed die and fall into the ground, I tell you verily, you will not have new life. Um, when, when people begin to plan families, they know that their children will inevitably, as human beings, um, suffer pain and heartbreak and disappointment and die. But very few people say, oh, I'm not going to have children because of that. We, we, we create, yeah. we bring this about. Why do we somehow say to God, oh, you should have left all the really nasty bits out? Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because, um, of course, I and my uh, uh, older sister and my younger sisters, the two of them, and my younger brother, and my parents are now dealing with that very reality. Uh, and I have been told that based upon my perspective, I'm still in shock. Uh, because I haven't had that moment of the the tears running down. Mm. Uh, I've gotten choked up a little bit in conversation, even in some of these interviews since my sister's uh, death. Bernie Siegel, <laughs> I, I have to tell the story almost every time. Bernie Siegel we had on this program, and he was sharing his the stories about the, the passing or the death of his wife. And I responded to him, so... so do you still have any kind of connection or communication with your wife since her transition? He says, why are you using the word transition? She died. What's wrong with you? You know, and I said, okay, to, so to be, to honor uh, uh, Bruce, uh, to, to honor Bernie, rather, to honor Bernie, Bernie Siegel, uh, my sister, she died of cancer. Um, but all of the beautiful stories that I'm now hearing, because I haven't been as connected. They all lived in Phoenix when I left in 2006. I've stayed in contact. I've gone back for Christmases and this and that and the other. But haven't had the kind of relationship with my siblings and my parents that I would have had maybe if I'd stayed in Phoenix or as a kid growing up until I was 21. So it's interesting that you, you bring this up because now my parents, in particular, because of the example that you just gave, uh, usually, you know, the old, you know, you hear this saying all the time that the parents aren't supposed to bury their ch the children. The children are supposed to bury the parents. Well, you know what? And then you talk about uh, suffering and, and those kinds of things and even using the word sacrifice. And I'll just share this real quickly uh, that I asked my parents in an interview that I did for this very program that will air after my parents' passing, which could be 10, 15 years, as far as I know. And again, bear in mind, my dad's 90, mother 87, so they're still going strong. Did you sacrifice anything to have this big family? And my mother answered right away, along with my father, no. We didn't sacrifice one thing because we wanted. Our choice was to have a big family. Now, yeah. 
the family members that were created, they each one had its its own set of dynamics. I was born and I was born legally blind with three different conditions. That was pretty much my condition and my brother the same way. My eldest sister, Jeanette, who just recently died, she had asthma from an early age and she would play the French horn. Who does that? You know, I, I often say, who plays a wind instrument or what have you, or a brass instrument with trouble breathing? And yet she was marvelous uh, and so on and so forth. So when you are going to have a family in this instance, in this example, Mark, you know, you make the choice, you know, yeah. and um, I, I think that it's a marvelous choice, but you also have to be willing to accept that these are the realities. We're talking with Mark Dowd. We're going to continue here on our conversation talking about his tsunami journey. My tsunami journey is the title of the book, and it's the quest for God in a broken world. There is a website people can go to. What is that, Mark? It is www.markdowd, M-A-R-K-D-O-W-D, dot U-K, U-K for the United Kingdom. And there you'll find not only references to the book, but also a whole series of uh, other documentaries and articles that, uh, that that I have written, but certainly the details on how to get hold of the, of, of, of the book. Um, and, you know... What's really important to stress, I think, Richard, is that I make it very clear at the outset of this book who this is designed for. This is not for militant atheists who don't really have any questions about the non-existence of a non-existent God. You, good luck with your um, explanation of the universe where even falling in love is all about the collision of atoms and particles <laughs> and nothing <laughs> spiritual. Uh, it's not for probably evangelical Christians who think that really they don't have a problem about this question, why God has created the world with pain and suffering, because ultimately the Bible has all the answers and it's all fine. The, the, the book is for two other sets of people, troubled believers, mm -hmm. of which I very much call myself one. <laughs> I sometimes sit there in church reciting the creed thinking, you don't really believe all this, do you? But you keep going. <laughs> keep going. Actually, I've just acquired a lovely one-year-old border collie hound. And the other day I made this terrible mistake in the creed. I said, I believe in dog, the father almighty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are those who, there are those who do truly believe that uh, uh, the creator, God, the father, if you will, however you want to refer, inhabits every subatomic particle of the universe and um, that it, it's inescapable. It's as yeah. inescapable as the living, breathing human being uh, inhaling oxygen. Okay, yeah. if you're going to continue on from this moment to the next, you have to take in that lungful of oxygen. That's a very Hindu conception. I mean, Hindus believe in Brahman. Brahman is spirit. Mm -hmm. and basically, everything that has life, every tree, every cat, every gnat and fly is blessed with this property. And there's an interdependency and a, and a linking of all of these things, which, given the climate crisis and given the ecological crisis, actually is a very interesting overlap between spirituality and, and ecology. I remember once talking to a Hindu guru about... Um, the whole man's humanity's wrecking of the natural world. And she sat there smiling away and, and shaking her head in that uh, 
unmistakable way with her beautiful saffron robes on. And she said, um, man cuts down the trees, but man doesn't realize that he's sitting on the branches. <laughs> well, I will tell you that uh, even within the Christian faith in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, uh, it says that God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And that word, uh, the breath or air, is uh, translated from the original languages as the spirit, the soul. And that's yeah. what God breathed into each one of us. Ergo, and this is an interesting fact that I came across from the scientific world. <clears throat> All of the atoms that make up both the oxygen and carbon dioxide, that which we take in through our nostrils or if we're a mouth breather, <laughs> um, they have been around for millennia. Yeah. Ergo, the air that we are breathing, the atoms that make up that oxygen, were also breathed by every, uh, now this, some people, people may think this is kind of disgusting, but it's true, has been breathed by every human being has ever lived from Jesus and Moses and Buddha and Mohammed and Paramahansa Yogananda and Hitler and Genghis Khan and... <clears throat> Vladimir Putin and uh, <laughs> what, what you're saying is basically if you think recycled air in an airline cabin is bad you ain't seen nothing you yet. ain't seen nothing but see that's what's interesting is and the earth has been designed in such a way to be its own purifier and um, I, I, I just want to bring this up in this context yes we had the tsunami and we've had them I mean uh, we had the tsunami off of Japan that, that flooded and destroyed the Fukushima a nuclear power plant in Japan but we have those those gyres now those gyres have always been there but the only and the only reason we can see them now is because of all the garbage that we have put into the oceans mm -hmm. and the first thing that came to me when I saw them was and again, this is going to be disgusting to some folks, and I apologize for any offense. That's the toilet bowl of yeah. the planet, okay? And it was designed for that purpose. Now, I don't know where the swirl goes. It's obviously a, sort of a whirlpool, but obviously it's pulling that stuff down somewhere. Maybe it pulls it down through the mantle and to the core where it's, I don't know, incinerated. And then you have the volcanic action uh, that takes place and so forth and so on. Uh, but, but the other thing that's really important to stress here yeah. is the importance of human agency in these disasters. Yeah. Look, look, look at the way that nearly a quarter of a million people lost their lives in that tsunami because they were living in very vulnerable, underprotected places with like horrible tin huts for dwellings. You know, in 1906, the famous San Francisco earthquake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richter scale 9.2, I think it was, very, very similar to the strength of the underwater tsunami created by that earthquake mm -hmm. um, in, in, in 2004. And yet only, I think, 58 people died in the West Coast. Wow. Because, because of the houses, their foundations, the way that, um, I mean, you know, in other parts of the world where we have tectonic plates, we have early warning systems. Uh, we have much, much stronger kind of foundations in the houses and the buildings, and yet we let the poor remain vulnerable. Now, is that God's fault? No. 
course not. No. Of course no. not. And, and we have the wisdom, we have the foresight, we have the warnings and the lessons to learn from all these things. I'm told to this day, because it's now 17 years after this event, very little has been done to improve the lot in some of those places. And if we had a repeat of this uh, out in the Indian Ocean, there will be carnage all over again. The, the only parts of nature that responded in time were the elephants and the animals that ran to the hills because they felt the underground vibrations. This is nature giving us a, a very good example of how often they've got the finger on the pulse in the way that humans haven't. Uh, they all fled to higher ground, uh, these, these animals, because they felt the, 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 you know, the warning that was coming um, and the way that the humans didn't. Also very interesting, when we went to India, I interviewed this very, very wise Catholic um, rector of this basilica. It was about um, a mile up on a hill and all the local people ran up the hill for protection with all the waves coming in. And this lovely man um, housed thousands and thousands of people in the precincts of the church. When I sat there and interviewed him for this book, and I said, when the tsunami happened and all these people lost their family members, did they come to you, you and say, oh, where was God when all this happened? And he sat there and smiled at me and said, no, no, Mark. He said, only Western journalists like you ask this question. <laughs> We're he talking. Said, the yeah, the local people here, we are, this is, we are India. We know that life and death are absolutely part and parcel of the cycle of existence. Mm. And we have this resignation about the inevitability of these things. But no, the, the only people asking where God was are people like you. <laughs> That's true. Yes, indeed. We're talking with Mark Dowd, and again, the title of his book is My Tsunami Journey, as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I have to say that this is this is fascinating. Now I'm wanting to jump into another area here for a little bit in the, in terms of <clears throat> some of the other experiences that you have which I'm sure are elucidated within the context of uh, within the covers of this this book. Um first uh, I want to ask you is your book My Tsunami Journey available in Audible? That's a very good question. Um I, this is the second book I've done, and the first book I did, we did get an a, a audible contract, and it was uh, it was an autobiography. It was um, it was it came from a very racy title, queer and Catholic. You know, how do you how do you get through life being a happy gay Catholic? And that's an interesting one, you know. Um, but it was great fun because I was able to do all these imitations and impersonations of my parents' voices <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and all these other things. Uh, I've pitched this book to Audible, and I'm very, very confident that um, in the ensuing weeks, once um, once the book sales really begin to pick up and people see how seriously uh, you know attractive this is as a read, that because it does, I mean, as you know, Richard, if you're a fan of Audible books as well, some books lend themselves to an Audible treatment in a way that others don't. Right. And because this one has a very strong narrative of a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's not lengthy. It's 164 pages of print, so I guess this will be probably something like a five to six hour listen. Um, but I, I'm, I'm getting, I, I'm, I have to say I'm quite naive. I didn't realize just how strong the audible market was. But the number of requests and uh, questions I've had from people saying, 
I probably won't buy your book, but if it's on Audible, I'll listen to it. Yeah. So um, so we have to make it we have to make it available. And as I have said many times on this program, I was listening to Audible before Audible was even Audible because when I was a kid, as I mentioned earlier, growing up, being legally blind, I listened to recordings for the blind and talking books for the blind, where I listened to for the first time and I've had I listened to it for Hundreds of times, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. It's my metaphysical primer. And, of course, many, many other books as well. So uh, Audible is, um, to use that current vernacular, is near and dear to my heart. I've even recorded a number of different books. Uh, when I was married to my first wife, who was totally blind, uh, and I've recorded uh, James, and this was all for private use only, uh, James Redfield's Celestine Prophecy, Gerald Jampolsky's Love is Letting Go of Fear, Og Mandino's The Greatest Miracle in the World, and, and many others as well. So I, I now I am producing them, actually. I have produced a couple, three uh, audibles uh, for people that are available up on Amazon. So it's a fun process, regardless of which side of the mic that I'm on, and I just love doing it. Uh, we're talking with Mark Dowd. His book is entitled My Tsunami Journey. We certainly hope that you will go to his website, Mark Dowd. That's M-A-R-K-D-O-W-D dot U-K for United Kingdom. As we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And Mark, I'm curious as to the people that you came across on your journey. And again, as the gentleman who facilitated this journey uh, from a financial level. Um, tell me about the different philosophies, and this is what I call them, philosophies, uh, mm. that you came across, maybe notably, of course, the ones that he mentioned that you would go to study, Hinduism and the Muslim faith and obviously Christianity and Buddhism. Um, and was what were the differences in explanation and was there any kind of a thread of similarity through all of the philosophies that you were uh, you were sort of um, dipped into, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Well, in D Indonesia, amongst the Muslims, we found this absolutely unquestioning acceptance of the power of God. There was a very impressive young man called Fadil. Oh, what a heart-wrenching story. The tsunami happened the day after his brother's wedding. They were all celebrating the following day in this great big marquee when the wave crashed in uh, on the shores of, of the town where he was living. He got as many family members as he could into this vehicle and began to drive away. But of course, the wave was much faster. He got swept into a mosque. Uh, he was clutching the sides of the mosque reading from the Quran as the water levels rose higher and higher. And mercifully, uh, he, he did survive. But when the waters receded, he went back to the truck where he managed to try and get more than 20 members of his family crammed into this vehicle, and they were all dead. He was the only remaining member of his family. Mm. And I sat in that mosque. We went back to the mosque where he'd survived. And I said, is your faith in God stronger or weaker now as a result of what happened? And he said, oh, it's stronger. I mm. said, why? Why? And he said, because God is all I have left. Mm. God is the only thing. And, and I said, well, why did God send a wave that killed so many members of your family? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, because I think God must have decided that was the time that they were to die. 
there was a sense of resignation. Go to India, and I remember this extraordinary interview with a young woman who lost her four-year-old child. She sat there smiling throughout the whole interview. It's like she just won the lottery, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, you don't seem at all troubled by the loss of your lovely boy. There was a picture of him just behind her on a piece of furniture, smiling towards the camera. And she said, I cannot be sad because my little child was born with divine light and divine life. And in death, God has gone to God. A little piece of God has gone back to the bigger God. He's not, he's not seen to me, but I haven't lost him. He's there. And when I look at the smiles of other children and the way that sometimes they play football and sports in the streets and the way they lick an ice cream, that reminds me of my child. And my child is permanently with me, even though he isn't with me, but he's always there. I have an absolute total faith in the fact that he's not been taken from me. He is there and he's a blessing and he continues to be a blessing, even though he's not here in my home. Mm. And, you know, I just thought, wow. And then you go, of course, to Thailand, and then you have the ultimate, perhaps best intellectual explanation for this problem about God and evil, where the Buddhists say, hmm, a wonderful story. The Buddhist monk said, if you walk down the street and a great big arrow hits you in the chest and you begin to bleed to death, you don't start saying, who made the arrow? Where did it come from? No. (laughs) You cure the wound. (laughs) said, you Westerners, Mm. you're too cerebral. Yes. You're too analytical. You you just need to accept that they're suffering and you need to help people. End of story. You will never solve the problem about whether God exists or not because it's not open to reason. So just get on with it and leave the God thing out. And I thought, oh, you know, that's such an attractive option. <laughs> but, then, but then you come back to your own roots, you know, my own parents, my upbringing. It's part of my identity. It's part of my DNA. Yeah. I mean, you just don't, you don't just click a delete file thing in faith in your brain, in your heart and say, I'm sorry, I'm just doing away with that now because it's convenient. But I was very persuaded by that uh, until the ultimate, you know, we, we came from back from this journey and I still really didn't have anything like a convincing answer for myself, for the question I'd set myself. And this really is, you know, does God exist? Well, I think so. Because my producer, two days after I said, Charlie, we need a great big conference or a symposium full of world experts and physicists with this question. And then he said, come and look at this. And he got up on the computer, this Google page, and it said, Vatican Observatory, Symposium on God and Natural Evil. (laughs) Now, is that universal synchronicity or what? Well, I just said, oh, my God, when's it happening? He said, oh, it's happening in a few weeks' time. So I rang a just Jesuit priest who was Father George Coyne, who was head of this observatory. And I said, you know, can we come and film? And he said, why would you want to come and film all of these people? So I explained the story and said, ah, we're the final piece in your jigsaw puzzle. (laughs) I love it. I said, I hope so, because if you don't answer this question, the film is going to have a very strange ending. (laughs) Oh, that's, I have to tell you, that's beautiful. I I, I mean, just the synchronicity there. 
Serendipity. Uh, and, yeah. And to think about that at the Vatican Observatory. I did not know they had an observatory, uh, but uh, I do now. <laughs> was, they were so embarrassed by Galileo, they decided several centuries later to actually embrace science and begin to take it seriously. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I would say that even today, um, uh, we we here in the West, here in the United States especially, need to do the same thing. Um, but I, I found it rather fascinating, the the perspective when it comes to um, the facts of things, whether it's uh, scientific facts or otherwise, that in many instances, people are going to only believe it if it's coming from a particular source. And that's kind of troubling because it's like, well, okay, but Galileo was part of the Catholic Church in his day. And uh, he, he never, I don't believe he ever renounced his position that the, that the earth is not the center of the universe. And yet there are many people who have a lot of problems with the Catholic Church, you know. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. He was a Catholic. You got a problem with the Catholic Church, which means you don't believe Galileo and that the earth is the center, that the earth is not the center of the universe. So yeah. because you don't trust that source. So we're, I mean, we're just, we're in a serious dilemma here when it comes to that kind of thing. But I think that's been probably a conversation for another Another program, My Tsunami Journey, Mark Dowd, markdowd.uk is the website, which we will be linked to also, Mark, as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, I, uh, I want to uh, ask you, I, I will say, uh, in reference to your comment in far, as far as Hinduism and the woman who is smiling, <clears throat> I have to say that I've kind of taken the same perspective Mm-hmm. with my sister in that I don't believe that when the body stops functioning, it's lights out. Now, if it is, I'm never going to know it, okay, because it's lights out. And I choose to believe that we are pieces of that hologram that we call God, there was a film I saw in grades in high school uh, where they had this piece of glass, large piece of glass, and they had treated it in such a way to where when they exposed it to an image, it created a holographic image in total. Then they broke the glass, and each piece of that glass contained the whole image. Not a piece, but a whole. And so the explanation the woman gave you, I could certainly accept as far as my sister's concerned. I'm hearing her voice in my head on a regular basis. Maybe it's not in my head. Maybe it's in my heart, but I'm hearing it. I'm hearing her laughter. I'm seeing her face uh, and hearing her voice and how it sounded. And I was actually, <laughs> I was actually told in another interview when I shared this, they well, uh, you know, Richard, uh, it's still so early on. You know, you're, you're, you're still in shock. Okay, maybe. And maybe I will have that big, boo, you know, a, you know, a cry, you know, which is fine. And, uh, uh, and then again, I may not. But Richard, my mother died uh, 12 years ago. And there's never a day when I don't see her shuffle in the high street. 
Yeah. Uh, the way that little old ladies stoop in the church and grab a hymn book in a particular way, a little phrase, a piece of music comes on. Yeah. And people who've never met her, they say, oh, my God, I feel as though I know your mother. I mean, it's the way that you just, you know, speak about her so rever reverentially. And um, I, I believe... Uh, I, I wouldn't be so patronizing with you as to say, oh my God, you're in shock. You need to get over it. You need to go and see a grief counselor. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say, and I bet this really rings true for you, I believe in something called presence through absence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That the more the person isn't there, the more there they really are, you know? Yeah. And I've been through a program called Life Between Lives Therapy. Years ago, several years ago, we have a practitioner here in Santa Barbara, and it's based upon the uh, studies and research of a Dr. Newton, and uh, he has several books out that are case studies where the research is, is written about with each of the people that he put under hypnosis. And uh, I was put under, but it was a conscious hypnosis. I was fully aware of every question that I was asked. No question was ever leading and it was my images and sounds and so forth that I expressed in that process. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that in terms of my sister. Now, death and dying, this sounds strange, that subject is near and dear to my heart because I'm very curious. Now, you talked earlier about uh, that there has to be a consistency as far as the laws of the universe, even with God, right? So I'm, I'm perplexed by the inconsistencies of Paul, who says it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. And Jesus raising Lazarus from, and it says it in the book, from the dead. Now, was Lazarus really dead or was this a violation of one of the universal uh, laws of the universe set up by God? You get one shot at death. And then, of course, then the next question is going to be raised. Well, if Lazarus wasn't dead and we've got the wrong word in there translated, what about all of these other people down through history, even to the modern day, who say, and even science will verify that, yeah, they were dead. They were dead for like 5, 10, 15 minutes, and we were able to bring them back. Uh, and then out of body experience, I mean, and then the list starts to really explode. And so, you know, these are the kinds of questions that I start asking. Uh, and I remember being told uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, when I was working for the Christian radio station, <clears throat> that I should go and seek the answers to my questions from the founding fathers of the faith. And I thought two things. Number one, uh, who set them up as the arbiters of the faith? All right. What's the criterion? And then the second thing was, and I didn't say this egotistically, well, I must be in the same category as the founding fathers of the faith because I'm asking these questions and wanting answers. And you were one of the fortunate, I don't want to say few, because we can do all of our searching even right where we are, but you had the most extraordinary experience of traveling and meeting people and, ask, and, and asking this one question. It's amazing how <laughs> you spent a year researching one question. And, um, and that's what I call commitment, my friend. That's what I call commitment. Lazarus is an interesting one because 
whatever you take on what really happened here, I mean, don't forget these gospel stories are not meant to be taken as factual accounts, literally written down like a reporter would on a notepaper. They have bigger um, lessons to teach us. And there are two big things I take from the Lazarus story. One is the shortest sentence in the whole of the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You know, how extraordinary that this man who's about to undergo his own passion and death and, and, and crucifixion is so moved by the loss of his friends that he is just reduced to standing there in tears. That's, uh, this is the son of God we're talking about, yeah. who misses his friend, who is clearly stung by Martha and Mary saying, if only you got here on time, he wouldn't have died. It's all your fault. <laughs> that's, a, that's an expression of faith, by the way, on their part, that they absolutely thought that if he'd been around at the time, that Lazarus somehow would have been spared death. Yeah. But the other really, really powerful thing about the Lazarus story is the contrast with Jesus's own resurrection. Because when Lazarus appears, he's still got all the bandages on. And he's clearly recognizable as a corpse who comes out of the darkness. Yeah. When Jesus appears, no one knows. They don't recognize him. Right. Now, what's going on here in the story? It's basically saying whatever was happening with Lazarus is like an electricity going through a corpse and temporary bring. And by the way, what did Lazarus hang around afterwards or did he die again afterwards? I don't know. I mean, you know, we just don't know what the, how the story continued. But I just find so fascinating the fact if your best friend had died the most excruciated, um, painful death and three days later appeared to you early one morning and you're in that person's presence and you don't recognize them, wouldn't you think it a bit odd? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, neither do they recognize it. But Mary suddenly recognizes him when her name is mentioned. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus recognize him in the breaking of bread. So what's going on here in the story? Three days on, Jesus is around, but he's not around. He's not a, a revivified corpse that we identify his presence and his spirit is absolutely there in the community and the way that was different with the Lazarus story. And I think the Lazarus story is there as a contrast because it happens very, very shortly before the entry into Jerusalem and the beginning of the Passion. You know, that's my, that's my take on Lazarus. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that it's fascinating to, to research some of this, uh, this kind of stuff. Um, one in particular I'll just mention, uh, years ago I interviewed an author who wrote a book called The Apocalypse Conspiracy, and he was doing some research about what Christianity was really all about. And um, he, he used one of these proofs. Uh, he went to a passage uh, uh, from Paul that says uh, that um, uh, they will be caught up to meet him in the clouds of glory, in the air, in the clouds of, uh, in the clouds of glory. Uh, and uh, this is referred to by modern day as the rapture passage. Oh, yes. So what he did was he focused on the word air in that passage because he felt that Christianity or Christendom had been taken down a primrose path um, and had been lied to or at least been deceived, maybe intentionally or otherwise. And when he began to research that word air, he found two definitions. The first one was, the air, uh, the air that we breathe, you see clouds floating through it, planes flying and so forth, and birds. 
The other one was was the definition we refer, uh, that I referred to earlier when we were talking about oxygen and air, and that is the second definition was, uh, i.e., God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam, i.e., his spirit. Well, guess which definition was the one used in that passage? And yet everybody likes to say that it was the other way around, that it's a physical, literal catching away of, um, I don't know if we retain our clothing or not, but, um, and, and yet he found it, no, it's not, it's an internal process. The same yeah. thing with the second coming. There is nowhere in the New Testament that says that he is coming back a second time. One, two, three, four. It just says he's going to return, but it doesn't say how many times. Yeah. And so this gentleman, his name is John Noe. I don't know if he's still alive or not. But his conclusion is that Jesus, in this context, can return to us as individuals over and over and over again. And that because Christianity is a faith-based philosophy, to have any material evidence to somehow support the reality, the truth, the validity of Christianity as the one true faith is to say it's no longer a faith. Because you're now using the material world to verify a spiritual philosophy. That yeah. was his perspective. Yeah. Your thoughts? I think one, one of the, uh, the great attractions and hallmarks of my Christian faith is the vulnerability of God. Uh, when so much distortion of religion is about pomp, and certainty and warring tribes and using religion as a tool to oppress people who are different from yourself. And what does God do in the Christian story? Comes into this world as a defenseless little child to non-entities of parents. These weren't celebrities. You know, Mary was a 14, 15-year-old Palestinian uh, shepherdess, probably, who was at the bottom of the social park. Uh, and his story ends in absolute disaster of everyone running away from him and deserting him. And at the moment of great triumph, crying out, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me? Mm. Does this sound like a religion to you that has certainty and conviction yeah. <laughs> right at its heart? It's, and and this is the, that's what's so human about the story, because these are dark spaces that we all visit and feel. Bad. And yet, and yet, God says, I'm, you know, I'm there with you because I've been through it with you yeah. in this recognizable story. And uh I think we have to remember that all the time that we, um, some of my atheist friends get very annoyed when they say, I say to them, I'm sorry, I can't be an atheist. I just don't have the faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to say that um, as far as my philosophical leanings and, you know, uh, because of uh, my uh, Catholic upbringing, the most honest position that I can take, quite honestly, because of what you've just said, the uncertainties and so forth, is the same as the late Larry King. Mm. And I consider myself to be a metaphysician who is an agnostic. 
I'm mm-hmm. searching, but I don't know. I honestly, I don't. I believe certain things, but that doesn't mean anything. I don't know for a certainty, and that's okay. That's we okay. I've devised this book for you, Richard, and we need to get it on Audible, and maybe you should produce it. I would love to produce it. I absolutely would love to produce it. Maybe we will talk after the program uh, here mm-hmm. on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're with Mark Dowd, and his book is entitled, and I have my copy, folks. I hope you get yours, My Tsunami Journey, the, uh, the, uh, basically the quest for God in a Broken World. MarkDowd.uk is the website. And, Mark, I have three final questions that I like to ask all of my guests. You may have addressed them to some degree uh, throughout the program, but I like to ask them directly. Before I do, though, I must address you, the listener and the viewer, to tell me your story and let you know that we are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Wednesdays for that special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And those of you not listening in the Pacific time zone, those times are Pacific, okay? (laughs) But the podcasts are available at any time of the day or night. On SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations all over the Internet. And we also ask you to participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision, where we ask you to go within and listen to that still, small voice. And that's an area, I, I, when I get to the end of these programs, we've talked about so much, Mark, it's like, what did your inner voice say? We'll have to save that for another time. Also, folks, if you'd like to support the work that we are doing here on Tell Me Your Story because it resonates with you, you like the guests and the subject matter, we'd greatly appreciate any financial support you can give us. We have a PayPal account. It's for your security as well as our, ours. There is a link on the homepage of, t- of richarddugan.com to PayPal, so you can go through that link. And when they ask for an email address to whom the contribution or support is being sent, it's Richard at RichardDugan.com. So easy. Richard at RichardDugan.com. With that, Mark, we enter what I love to call the lightning round of the game show we like to call Tell Me Your Story, where we ask these three final questions of all of our guests. And the first of those three is, who is Mark Dowd? <laughs> Mark Dowd is a 62-year-old man who was born in Manchester in the north of England. Uh, raised as a Roman Catholic, uh, went on to study politics uh, before becoming a Dominican friar uh, for two years. <laughs> and then rather scandalously, I fell in love with another man and eloped with him during Holy Mass. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Um, yeah. Uh, and in fact, I'm now uh, married Uh I never thought I would say that as a Roman Catholic in the 1970s. I'm married. I have a husband and stepchildren, a dog, a cat, and a bearded dragon, uh, which is basically a very large lizard. They all live together <laughs> in our lovely little house here in, in, in Manchester. I'm uh, somebody who worked for the Times newspaper uh, and then went on to work for the BBC, both in television and radio. Uh, and then from the year 2000, I presented more than 15 documentaries on international television about questions of faith. We made programs like the children of Abraham. Why are Jews and Muslims and Christians squabbling so much when they all come from the same prophetic origins? Mm-hmm. We made God is green, God and, and climate change and, and the protection of the planet. 
Uh, we made one on fundamentalism. Uh, we made one on Opus Dei, very interesting movement in the Catholic Church. And so a lot of the details of, of those programs and a lot of the radio programs I've done as well are all on that website address, which uh, you mentioned, Richard. And um, isn't it ironic, don't you think, that I thought I went into the Catholic priesthood to, to preach, to spread the Christian faith and to be a questioning believer. But my heart um, told me that actually probably being with another human being was probably where I should be and not with the priesthood. But 20, 30, 40 years on, God has got me doing TV and radio, talking about God all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're back somebody to up there, Somebody up there has a manner of getting his or her way. You know? Yes, yes, indeed. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I want to achieve a wider discussion of these big questions uh, about the relationship between God and science, the relationship between the different world religions, and also the crossover points, which are much, much more important than the elements of difference that separate us. I'm not saying that all religions are the same. We know that they're not. I mean, uh, we study Hindu texts and Buddhist texts and Christian scriptures, and we know we have to have respect for differences. But, you know, we mustn't fall into the trap of not having the dignity of difference uh, and if there's one thing that I would talk about uh, here in the present Ukraine crisis uh, and at a time where questions of migration and the movements of people threaten to cause lots of stresses and strains, one of the absolutely key precepts of, of Judaism and Christianity, and I think probably Islam too, is the respect for the stranger. It's easy to be nice to people that you know and who are like you, but it's much, much more difficult to embrace people who are different. Yeah. But in the Gospels, Jesus is so good at looking at people who are marginalized and saying, ah, you're an evil Samaritan. I'm going to tell an amazing story about you because you're the Jews' enemies. And it wouldn't it be nice if there was a story about whether Samaritan is the hero. Mm -hmm. Jesus turns all of those prejudices of ours to demonize the outsider and flips them on their head. And, you know, 2000 years on the teachings of the gospels appear more and more radical and relevant than ever before. Hmm. Our final question. What is your life's purpose? <laughs> oh, wow. Woo. Um, to use the talents and gifts that I have been given responsibly, compassionately, and then long after I've gone into the ground or become a pile of ashes, to have people speak respectfully about me and say, Mark's life was of a great service to God and to the gospel. And that in fact, Mark was a gift to us uh, not because of any great vanity or because he was a particularly great bloke. No, he was just an instrument of, of God's sharing in the world. Mm. If people say that in a few years' time, 
um, and look after my dog, I'll be very happy. <laughs> well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program and sharing your story. This is a it's a phenomenal story, not just from a, a physical material perspective in terms of your travels, but from a spiritual and philosophical perspective. And uh we all need to, as the saying goes, we need to spend the time walking in somebody else's shoes to better understand who we are as well. And we thank you for helping us to uh, walk a little bit in your shoes. And thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Richard. And we will have you back to have those conversations, okay? Oh, well, as my mother used to say, the great thing about Mark is that he loves backing into the limelight. There you go. We'll let you do that. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I'll be listening.